Welcome to the McQuaid Arcade Podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Biggs. We have spent the last 25 episodes of the show. Congrats, by the way. Whoop, whoop. 25 episodes, dude. That's a lot. What's the What's the traditional gift for 25 of something? Is it pewter? Probably pewter. I'm going to go to that weird store at the mall and I'm going to get you like a sweet pewter dragon <laughs> for our 25 episode anniversary. Um, I will cherish it always. <laughs> we've talked about... Uh, over these last 25 episodes, so many movies and games and cartoons and toys that we loved growing up. But today, we're talking about another great love of ours that we haven't really discussed yet, and that's books. We were a couple of little bookworms, and we thought we'd share just a few of our favorite books that we grew up with. Now, we loved comics too, and I definitely want to do an episode where we talk about some of the weird, obscure stuff, comics that we used to be into. But uh, this time around, we're not talking comic books, we're talking book books. The Endless Quest books were my absolute favorites. Released starting in 1982 by TSR, yep, that's THE TSR, founded by Gary Gygax, the books were apparently the result of an endeavor to develop curriculum programs for reading, math, history, and problem solving in general, but what we got was so much better. The Endless Quest books were very similar to the Choose Your Own Adventure books, which has sort of been the genericized term, kind of the Kleenex of these books, but those were actually their own separate series. And the Endless Quest ones, though, were longer, I thought they were much more interesting, and they were way more sophisticated. Unlike the more anodyne, quote-unquote, you character in the Choose Your Own Adventure books, the Endless Quest books were really much more fleshed out. There was always a name, a backstory, and they were honestly very well written. My favorite author was Rose Estes, and the book that changed my life was Return to Brookmere. So let's read the back of the book blurb together, shall we? Pick a path to adventure. You are Brian, an elven fighter on a scouting mission for your father the king. Can you destroy the monsters that invaded Brookmere, your family castle? The paths you may take through Brookmere are many, and the choices are yours. Only you can decide whether you find truth or disaster. Will you fight the monsters that rush you from the dark castle corridors? Will you try to trick the evil were-rat ruler who controls Castle Brookmere? Or will you run down another corridor into the unknown? No matter which choices you make, adventure and action are yours in Endless Quest, trademark, books. You will find yourself returning again and again to experience new paths of excitement. Will your choices let you find a way to return to Brookmere? Oh, gosh, I sure hope so. I'm excited just rereading the back cover, <laughs> right? Here is a little sample that they print right on the first page when you turn the cover. Note well, this is not the actual beginning of the book. It's a part of the story at some point, but it gives you a really good flavor that I think gives you a sense of what's going on if you've never read one of these, and I highly recommend that you do. So it says, um, return to glory or journey to disaster. The corridor pulses with an eerie glow that comes from a doorway at one end that shimmers like 1,000 lightning bugs. Wisps of cloud reach out like skeletal fingers as if to grab you in their bony clutches. And then you get to the choices. One, if you choose to enter the doorway, turn to page 52. Or two, if you retrace your steps and choose either passage at the entrance to the dungeon, turn to page 119. It goes on then to say, Entering the cloud door could help you find out what has become of your father's castle and the fabulous treasure stored in its dungeon vaults. Or it could lead you to the dreaded lair of the unknown invader. The choice is yours. Only you can choose the path that will return your kingdom to its old glory. Or will lead you into the clutches of the evil were-rat, Frang. 
you pick your own path to adventure. So you would literally go to page 52 if you pick that first choice and see where it takes you. And honestly, to be fully transparent, I had no idea what I was doing half the time. And you hit all these dead ends, you died literally sometimes. And whenever this happened, sometimes in a very spectacular way, it would let you know that this was the end of the story, but you could go back to the beginning and start again. I think that philosophically, it's really kind of a remarkable idea that there is a strong narrative that's really artistic, but you get to explore the effect of these different choices, which maybe not leveraged here to its fullest extent, but this really could be useful about learning things. You know, this is the original vision was to do something more didactic. And it makes sense to me that this could be a useful tool for learning in his wonderful new book, a thousand brains. Jeff Hawkins says, a model is the embodiment of knowledge. And I think being able to explore a world more deeply like this is a gateway to building that model. Return to Brookmere was book number four. And as we said, it's my favorite. But I had, and I still actually have, the first 16 books, which actually comprise all of the Rose Esty ones as well. The titles are delicious and give you a sense of the books. Dungeon of Dread, Mountain of Mirrors, Pillars of Pentagon. Oh, I love these books so much. Ridiculously, neither of my kids will even so much look at these despite <laughs> my begging them. We would read these books together over the phone. Yes. We were constantly on the phone together as kids. We still are. The only difference now is that it's our wives and not our parents asking, what the hell do you guys talk about all day? Like, what can you possibly <laughs> still have to say? to each other that you didn't say like the three other times that you talked today. <laughs> These books, I only ever had this one return to Brookmere, and, but I read all through all of them with you over the phone or in person. And this was definitely my favorite. These books were our introduction to the world of Dungeons and Dragons. We certainly didn't play D and D at this age. And we were reading these books before the cartoon that we loved so much before that came out. But this was a, an introduction to some of the lore and locations and creatures of the Dungeons and Dragons world. But it was another book series, also from 1982, that really introduced us to what it would be like to actually eventually play a role-playing game like D&D. And that was the Fighting Fantasy game book series in which you are the hero, they would say on the cover. <laughs> This series was created by Ian Livingston and Steve Jackson, the two guys who founded Games Workshop, the company that created Warhammer. Apparently, they were approached by a publisher for a book about the hobby of role-playing games, but convinced that publisher to let them just create actual role-playing game books instead. And what they created, the Fighting Fantasy game books, they were similar to the Endless Quest series, but these took that concept to the next level with an actual game element. They were essentially little mini single-player role-playing games. My favorite, and the one that I still have, is the Citadel of Chaos, or Chows, as I pronounce it in my head, because I think I read it before I actually ever heard the word spoken. I love that. that you, that's the sign of a little bookworm, right? Because you mispronounce words because you've never said it or heard it said. Yes, you're exploring new words that you've only seen written. So... The way it works is you open up the book and you look at the table of contents and there are a few chapters that tell you how to play the book. There's chapters called How to Fight Monsters, Using Magic, Equipment, and Your Adventure Sheet, which is basically the equivalent of your character sheet in a role-playing game. You roll dice to determine your stats and then you use those stats in conjunction with dice rolls to fight the various monsters you find in the game. 
You can also find items throughout the book, depending on what choices you make, and add those to your inventory and use those as well when the book, you know, offer that as a, as a possible solution to a problem. I'm going to uh, read a quick sample encounter from the book to give you an idea of exactly how it works. Now, this is a, you've come across like a, a ghost, a ghostly woman. Like, look at this. The pages are literally falling out of this book. The Citadel of Chows. Of Chows. <laughs> she lifts her head and calls into the air. You stop in your tracks as you see the washing on the line rustle and kick about in the air, freeing themselves. Several pieces of clothing wisp through the air towards you, and as they get close, you can make out ghostly bodies with long dead faces inside the clothes. Protect me, my sons and daughters, the ghostly woman cries, and suddenly the clothes are all around you. One pair of arms wraps around your neck, making it difficult to breathe. The stranglehold is tightening, and you will have to use your magic to get free unless you have something in your backpack to offer the woman. Will you offer her some small berries? Offer her a silver mirror. And it was cool because you would read this. And if you haven't come across it, you're like, what? Like what? Berries? Like what combination of choices would lead me to find some berries or a mirror? And the third option is use a fire spell. If you have none of those, turn to 194. Let's pretend we don't have any of those things. It says, the stranglehold around your neck tightens and your last living memory is one of fear. Of these non-human creatures with their long dead faces gloating over your death. You have failed in your mission. These were a little darker than the Dungeons and Dragons book. They were a little, you know, a little more intense, but it was neat. You know, if you had a fire spell, you could chase off the ghost with that. Sometimes the books would mess with you. And uh, like the option of the small berries, you offer her some berries. You turn to that page and it's like the ghost woman says, um, I'm a ghost lady and I don't really need any berries, but thanks. And then you die from the ghost anyway. <laughs> There were no participation trophies in this book. These books were so fun, and they had really cool uh, illustrations and covers. Some of the covers, like this one, you know, it's pretty freaky. There's some kind of intense paintings of scary monsters and stuff. Is that Medusa? Looks like Medusa on there. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a Medusa. Yeah. Wow. As I was doing some research for the show, I discovered that the fighting fantasy books were involved in a moral panic. There's a whole moral panic section on the Wikipedia page for these books, and, uh, you know, we love a good moral panic here at McQuaid Arcade, so <laughs> I had to check that out. And this is what it says on the Wikipedia page. The books were published with illustrations from Games Workshop, which Ian Livingston credits as part of the series' success. However, partially as, as a result of the covers, the game, along with Dungeons & Dragons, became subject of a moral panic. The Evangelical Alliance issued a warning that the books would lead to players interacting with the devil, while parents reported that after reading... Their children developed supernatural powers, including one mother who reported that her child started to fly. I'm going to stop you right there and say that's a feature, not a bug. I mean, right? <laughs> when, when asked about the controversy, Jackson replied they were very grateful for it as it helped their sales figures. Sadly, while they gave me hours and hours of entertainment, these books did not give me any supernatural powers. Maybe I was doing them wrong. Um, I neither spoke to the devil nor gained the power of flight, which after reading that kind of feels like I got a, a raw deal. I'll say, my gosh. The rights were eventually acquired by Scholastic, and we can't do a show about the books of our childhood and not talk about Scholastic book fairs. 
right? We mentioned these a couple episodes ago in our episode about computers, but we didn't have really have time to properly reminisce about them. The magic of the school book fair. Was there anything else like this? What's the tweet? You told me there was that great quote you saw that triggered this whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've said it at least once on the show and I need to figure out who said it so I can give the proper credit. But there was a, a tweet that says, I am still chasing the high of a scholastic book fair. It's so true, right? As little kids, this was the big deal. Each month or every couple months, whenever we had those, we would sit there and furiously scribble out all the books that we wanted. It was so amazing. Pour over those little flyers. And I actually have a couple of book fair artifacts still. One of them is a Masters of the Universe book called The Trap from 1983. Mm. It's a little picture uh, storybook by Golden, and it's illustrated by... An artist named Dan Spiegel, who is probably best known for doing stuff exactly like this, comics and illustrations based on movie and television characters, which which is kind of a neat little like niche he fell into. And not too long ago, my kids uh, couldn't decide on a book to read together at bedtime. So I ran downstairs to my office and I grabbed this and I was like, "Okay, boys, time for daddy to introduce you to He-Man. And they were like, what's a He-Man? Like, what does that even mean? (laughs) Where are his pants? Like what? Like not exactly impressed, but they kept each other entertained by making fun of it the whole time. This important artifact from my childhood. So, you know, that was great, but it got us through bad times. So whatever. I loved it when I was little and I must've read it a hundred times. The other Scholastic Book Fair purchase I still have is from a book series called Worlds of Power. Now these were novelizations of Nintendo games put out by Scholastic in an effort to appeal to kids who loved Nintendo. Now, I should clarify, when I say Nintendo, these are based off of games for the Nintendo Entertainment System, not actually games made by Nintendo, because Nintendo themselves wouldn't agree to it. And uh, Scholastic went to other publishers who did agree to take part in this, like Konami and Tecmo and Sunsoft. A guy named Seth Godin Godin came up with the idea for the series, and he selected games from the different publishers' libraries. Everyone back then, the the actual companies making the games were so busy cranking out Nintendo tapes that they were just like, yeah, whatever, sure, just send us the royalty check. And this guy, Seth, (laughs) went through their libraries and like chose the games he wanted to do. And then he had the authors he assembled to write the books actually sit down and they all played through all the games and sort of like reverse engineered stories out of them, which I thought was really cool. That's cool. And he listed the author of all the books as FX9. Which sounds super cool. Super cool. We literally thought there was like the raddest guy ever out there. And his name was FX9. (laughs) And his job was to write books about Nintendo games. (laughs) As if we weren't getting enough Nintendo in our lives back then, right? We could now read Nintendo games. And our parents were like, will you you turn that thing off and go read a book? And we're like, okay. I'm going to go read some FX9 and just read a Nintendo game. (laughs) Now... I think the whole series eventually ran like 10 books or so, but they launched with four. There was Blaster Master, Metal Gear, Castlevania II, Simon's Quest, and Ninja Gaiden. Not only do I have all of those first four books, I have them, if you see here, complete with their collector trading cards still in place. Oh my goodness. And I have them. These are gorgeous. All in the original boxed set. Oh my goodness. I love it. Yeah. There was no bigger book fair flex than walking out of there with this <laughs> so that's, yeah it's a fun artifact i still have that's why you're so cool i mean one of the reasons <laughs> um <laughs> you're still cool all these years later and that's where it all began 
I think maybe the book that we loved the most that I'm, I'm almost positive that we discovered at a book fair was a book called The Monster's Ring. Yes. By Bruce Koval. Yes, yes, yes. Now, I recently read this book to my older kid, and this was no He-Man. Like, he loved <laughs> He didn't ask where the pants were. Right. There was no question about <laughs> pants. I had to reacquire this. I didn't have my old copy of it. But uh, it is just as good as I remember it. So it, it's a story about a boy who is bullied. And I got to say, the bullying scenes in the book are kind of intense. At least they were for my kid. You know, nowadays, kids have to deal with the, the cyberbullying. But this was some good old-fashioned, uh, you know. Good old-fashioned fisticuffs. I'm going to put some dirt in your eye kind of stuff. So this kid who's bullied, he ends up getting a mysterious ring from a magic shop that can turn him into a monster. And the ring comes with instructions in the form of a little poem. Twist it once, you're horned and haired. Twist it twice, and fangs are bared. Twist it thrice, no one has dared. He's told specifically not to turn the ring on his finger more than twice. And of course he does. And, you know, monster shenanigans ensue. I'm telling you, my kid was glued to his seat listening to this and it got a little scary for him at times just wait until i read him scary stories to tell in the dark remember that (laughs) book god yes that was like those books were terrifying to even look at in fact they re-released them a few years ago and they got rid of all of the super disturbing old illustrations that were a huge part of what made them so great and uniquely scary and disturbing and messed up yes i was so upset we got a version of it for my kids and all the illustrations are different so i was furious i'm like wait a minute i remember this totally differently and sure enough i had to go find a vintage copy because you're right they really the new ones stink god i love those books there there was always a waiting list for them at our school library anyway maybe one day i'll read those to him but he really loved the monster's ring i definitely recommend it as something to read to your kids or maybe to yourself. It's a lot of fun. Uh, read a kid's book. It's okay. There's no shame in it. A good book is a good book. Period. On evenings like this, I like to curl up with a good book. The sort of book that lets the imagination run away with you. If you're like me and enjoy the mysterious and the unexpected, you'll love the enchanted world. A fascinating new series from Time Life Books about the legends, myths, and folk tales of ages past. Let's talk about the Enchanted World books. The Enchanted World was a series of 21 books published from 1984 to 1987. Each book focused on a different aspect of mythology, fairy tales, or folklore. And they were released as this big series by Time Life Books. These actually would be shipped to your house monthly or thereabouts as sort of an early subscription concept, not unlike how we got the Grolier encyclopedias. We got those stinkers one at a time for years. That's how they actually completed it. These things are gorgeous, fully illustrated, cloth-bound hardcover books that are actually beautifully written and and really heavily researched. The primary consultant I finally learned was someone named Tristram Potter Coffin, now that, that name alone gives him some street cred, right? But he was a Guggenheim Fellowship award-winning University of Pennsylvania Professor Emeritus of English. So, I mean, these were kind of scholarly. And some of the titles included Wizards and Witches, Dragons, Fairies and Elves, Tales of Terror. There were 21 of them in all. I still have all of them, and they're in near-perfect condition. I mean, I, they really kept, kept beautifully. And I just want to give you a little tiny excerpt from one of my favorite books, The Secret Arts. This just gives you a taste of the writing. Quote, 
Insatiable in their lust for knowledge, the practitioners of magic yearn to see beyond the tangible world, to learn the secret laws that govern the fates of souls and nations. In every age, scholars sought to piece together fragments of these hidden truths and to grant themselves a kind of immortality by preserving their hard-won discoveries for adepts as yet unborn. Unquote. Mm. Holy cow, right? I mean, these are we're like 10 and 11 years old reading these books, and this is the kind of level that they're telling these old stories, these unbelievable illustrations. Incredible. Mystic places? Uh-huh. It's from Time Life. Talks about things like the Nazca Lines. Were they runways for alien spaceships? And did those aliens interbreed with the ancient Peruvians? Did they? Read the book. Read about the medieval warriors who appeared before Stephen Jenkins in 1936. Then he saw him again 38 years later. That true? Read the book. Read about Cyrus Teeth's belief that people live in the center of the earth. Admiral Byrd looked into it. Know what he found? I know. Read the book. Read the book was the punchline to another beloved Time Life series, right? And the commercial was absolutely hilarious, and everyone used to say it all the time in school. This was a different series in the same vein, but it was called Mysteries of the Unknown. And this one really focused more on the paranormal, as opposed to sort of the more folkloric-type things that was in the Enchanted series. This came from 1987 through 1991, and lots of different topics in here. Ghosts, UFOs, psychic powers, dreams. This series was incredibly successful. It broke apparently every sales record for the company within the first year or so of its introduction. And more importantly, it permeated pop culture and became a meme before that word was in widespread use. And a quick side note, the word meme originated with Richard Dawkins in his 1970, 1976 book, The Selfish Gene. He originally used the term to talk about a cultural entity that an observer might consider a rep Replicator, like a song, an earworm, fashion, skills. And he made an analogy to the natural selection of genes, hence meme kind of sounding similar to genes in biological evolution. Some of my favorite titles, book number one, Mystic Places. It talks about some of the places known for supernatural activity or ancient mysteries that were yet unsolved, things like Atlantis, going to the center of the earth, the Great Pyramids of Giza, Stonehenge. I mean, this is where I got a lot of my fuel for my imagination later on. I mean, this what was crazy here is I'm reading this with my eyes wide open, as big as saucers, and I'm like... Why aren't we talking about this stuff at school? This is important stuff. Like, this is unknown. And cra- <laughs> I mean, it was crazy. Book two, Psychic Powers. They talk about ESP. They talk about um, all this interesting stuff with psychics and even the Yorkshire Ripper case. Number three, UFO Phenomenon started my lifelong love of UFOs and my obsession with this whole phenomenon. I think it's fantastic. This is the first time I learned about the Roswell incident. This is where I learned about the idea of government cover-ups. And then number four, book four is actually Psychic Voyage. And they're talking about out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, and reincarnation. One of my other favorites is Mysterious Creatures, and I'm just going to read you a tiny bit from there. Quote, Real or imagined, strange creatures have walked the earth, swum in its seas, and winged through its skies from time immemorial, striking terror and awe in their beholders. Unquote. It's gorgeous. Later in this book, they reference the Kraken, and this is fits in nicely with our last episode on the Clash of the Titans. Highly recommend you listen to that one. They note here that, quote, the Kraken of Scandinavian lore was a horned sea monster so huge that it was sometimes mistaken for a group of islands. The Kraken was also known to discharge an inky liquid that blackened and poisoned the waters, a characteristic that, like its tentacles, reveals the creature to be a monster-sized version, 
of the real life giant squid, unquote. So good, right? There's so much here. These could almost be a show in and of themselves. Uh, so let us know at McQuaidArcade.com if we should do a deeper dive into these books. I'd love to do an episode about these and like just all of the other weird mail order stuff we used to have access to back then that used to be available to us. Like, like from cool stuff like this to depressing disappointments like sea monkeys and x-ray glasses i would love it in fact i think i told you i have this incredible book called mail order mysteries that looks at some of these things from our childhood i would love to do that with you in depth so i have these amazing memories i mean these are seriously some of my absolute favorite memories of my childhood and they are of being in the little public library in the town i grew up in it was super close to my house and it was right on the way home from school. I'd walk home and the library was, you know, between my house and school. I was definitely young, maybe, I don't know, eight or nine, maybe younger. I can picture exactly where it was in the library, the shelf where I would grab this big hardcover book about dragons and I would take it over to these big comfy chairs they had by the fireplace. And I would look through it like every day. I loved it. I don't think I ever actually checked it out because reading it there at the library was was part of the whole experience and I thought about that book for decades and I tried many, many times over the years to find it, but I had no title or author to go by. So I just Google things like vintage dragon book or 1970s dragon book or 80s dragon book. And I didn't, you know, I didn't remember exactly what the cover looked like, but I absolutely knew that I would know it if I ever saw it again. Well, one night a couple of Months ago, I was hanging out in my wife's office with her while she was working. And just as I had many times before, I just randomly started Googling. I'm like, I'm going to look for the dragon book. So I started Googling old dragon book or whatever it is I typed in. And then for whatever reason, this time for the first time ever, bam, like there it was. And I recognized it instantly. Holy cow. And my poor wife is sitting at her desk working. And all of a sudden I yell, oh my God, from the couch. <laughs> And she jumps and screams, and I felt bad, but I, I couldn't believe it. I found it after all these years of looking. Turns out it's a book just called Dragons. Uh, it was written by Peter Hogarth and Val Cleary in 1979. So it was actually just a few years old when I, you know, discovered it. But at the time, it, it felt like it, it had this very old quality to it, right? Like it was this ancient tome about dragons that I discovered. And... Uh, I found a copy on Amazon and I have it here on my shelf and I flip through it every now and again and I look at all of the old illustrations and paintings that I, that used to just absolutely captivate me as a kid. There's St. George. There's this amazing, amazing painting of, of smog from the Hobbit. And every time I look at this book, it always instantly takes me back to those days sitting in those big comfy chairs in the library by the fireplace. The iconic television show Reading Rainbow premiered nearly four decades ago on June 6, 1983, hosted by the inimitable LeVar Burton. And as Tina Fabrique sang in the memorable theme song, Butterfly in the sky, I can go twice as high. Take a look, it's in a book, a reading rainbow. Indeed, the books we loved shaped us and inspired us. They made us who we are. They allowed us to connect with authors, sometimes long past, who were even geekier than we were about subjects that captivated us. And they brought us together to share, to think, and to dream. 
And on that note, stay limber. For more fun from the 80s and beyond, be sure to follow at McQuaid Arcade on social media and sign up for our newsletter at McQuaidArcade.com. McQuaid Arcade is a McQuaid Media Production.